0: Wow. Great song. Great song, guys. Yeah. Hey, good morning. My name is Adam. I work on staff here as the pastor of student ministries. And uh, it was at one time, at one point in time, my goal to know everyone's name in the church. And I started to get really close and then the church started to grow. So uh, that is a great way for me to fail at my task. But if you're new here, let me just say I'm glad you're here. I'm so excited about where Mission View is headed. Uh, Utilizing Pastor Steve's foundation and the mission and the heart that he had for the people uh, in our community. And and looking at uh, Pastor Matt's vision that he brought to us last week. It's an exciting time to be at Mission View. If you didn't get a chance... Uh, To be here last week, I would encourage you to go online and look at uh, our sermon from, or uh, Pastor Matt's sermon from last week. Um, uh, It was also our five-year anniversary as a church, and he laid out an exciting vision, and I'm so glad to be able to be here with you guys this morning. We're in a series called Philippians, Finding Joy in the Journey, Finding Joy in the Journey. Uh, And this is an exciting series because it's something that everybody can get on board with. Uh, There's not a lot that's controversial about the idea of finding joy in the journey. And so as we look at this, I know we've taken a a week off here or there. I want to um, provide us with some context of Philippians. So go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. And context is important because it's valuable for getting Scripture right. It's valuable for accurately determining what the author's intent was at the time of his writing and it's it's important because it helps us to better understand and better apply it to our lives and we're going to see that this morning. So I want us to be reminded of who Paul was uh, when he was Saul. At one point in time the author of this book, his name was Saul, he was a Pharisee, meaning he was a very uh, legalistic, religious figurehead. Uh, Pharisees weren't generally well-liked. Uh, they were very intense about Old Testament law. And not that these things are bad in and of themselves, but it became a, a political party sort of thing, and they, were, um, they didn't practice what they, what they preached, essentially. And he did this for a period of time, and eventually he, he grew and, and rose through the ranks as a Pharisee and started to persecute the church. Uh, so when Jesus came and lived and died and was resurrected and ascended into heaven and, and the rest of the church started to, to form as a result of this, he started to find believers, drag them out of their houses, execute them, all sorts of stuff. And it wasn't until he encountered Jesus on, a, on the, the road to Damascus that he uh, changed his tune and he became the author of two-thirds of our New Testament. He took the idea of a, a mission seriously and he began to travel and establish churches. And one of the churches that he established was Philippians. In fact, it was the first church that he established. So that was about 62 uh, AD that he, he wrote this, and it was about 10 years prior uh, that he had established this church. And it was, it, was, uh, it was very Roman. There wasn't a lot of a, a Jewish presence there. There were a lot of uh, former military personnel. And despite all of this, the church had been doing very well. They had been doing well. They had uh, accepted, heard and accepted the gospel that Paul shared with them. Uh, They encouraged him and supported him financially and in prayer as he continued across the countryside to bring the gospel to more people. And now at this point, at the time of his writing, Paul is actually in in prison in some form or another uh, in Rome. And what we've seen in in previous sermons, if you've been with us, is he talks about uh, in Philippians chapter 1, seeing clearly that his imprisonment is serving to advance the gospel. And we see a little bit about the joy that he maintains in his sorrow. And he moves into chapter 2 and he's talking about the example that Christ sets in, in his humility. And then he talks about our reward from the, and the work that God is doing. And today our topic is going to be lose it all to gain it all. Lose it all to gain it all. So this is Philippians chapter 3. So with that context in mind, let's read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews This passage is full of great stuff. And so to, to help us trek through it, I've got three guiding principles that I want to give us ahead of time. So if you're a note taker, go ahead and split your notes into three. The first is look ahead. Look ahead. The second is look out. And the third is look in. Look ahead, look out, look in. And uh, as we dive in, I'm going to go ahead and pray first. And then we'll take a look at, uh, at this passage in depth. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for being with us. God, thank you for communicating to us uh, through your word. Thank you for being present with us in the power of your spirit. God, I pray that you would help us to understand your word. I pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives in a way that is accurate, in a way that is glorifying to you. So help us to put aside any of our preconceptions or or our false, false motives or selfish ambition to read your text for what it is. Uh, and have the humility to apply it to our lives. Pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm glad that we're in a fun, we're in a fun book. I think Philippians is a fun book. Joy is mentioned 14 times in four chapters. Uh, so it's a fun book. I think there are not fun books of Scripture, by the way. Is that safe to say from up here? I think there are some books that are more boring than others or more convicting than others. but I think Joy or uh, Philippians is a fun book. Now I'm not the greatest at memorizing Scripture either. and so uh, rather than try to take a verse and learn it by rote and just repeat it, what I've done over time is I, I've found it helpful to associate whole books of the 66 that are here. Uh, with particular words. And so I can remember, okay, Genesis has got a lot to say about beginnings and uh, Philippians is the one, it's the one about joy. So if I ever am looking for a passage that particularly pertains to joy, I can narrow my search down to about four chapters and likely find it here. The fact that Paul is in prison when he writes this book makes uh, the joy theme even more prominent, I think. And I, I started to... Study for, for this morning and ask myself the question are, am, I, am I joyful? Is joy a, a defining uh, characteristic of my life? I, I have a friend who is basically Eeyore, and he's not joyful ever. Just, how's it going? Uh, you know. How's your week? Not too good. How do you sleep? I don't sleep. I, and this is how he lives his life, and I like to think that I am joyful, at least I, I hope I am, and there's a lot of qualities that I desire in myself because I think they make me look good, or I think uh, it, it boosts my, my appearance, or, or I think it makes me look okay in the eyes of others, uh, but joy is something that I just want inherently. I want joy because I want joy. I want it for me. And isn't, isn't that true? Don't we all kind of want something similar? You may recall Matt uh, referred to humanity's unalienable rights in the Declaration of Independence when we started this series. And those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. According to our Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness is a a right that all people have. And so I was thinking about this and I thought, well, maybe a more appropriate question would be where where do you look for joy or where do you look for happiness? In my life, I've, I've found happiness in, in a good many things. I've made a list of them here for you. Uh, getting married is one. Uh, waking up next to my wife is another one. Graduating school was one. Winning a board game is one. The $5 box combo at Taco Bell is one. Snow days, Christmas morning, a can of Dr. Pepper, acing a test that I worked hard to study for or barely barely passing a test that I did not study for. (laughs) Music, Friday nights. These things make me happy. You have your own list, I'm sure. And some of them make me uh, more happy than others. Getting married and the box combo are at the top. (laughs) But interestingly, these these things, even even the best ones, don't ultimately satisfy me on a permanent level. I just was at a wedding last night, and I heard the father of the bride uh, sharing some encouragement to the couple, and he s- was excited about their commitment to one another, and he said something along the lines of, you know, happiness is overrated because it's impossible to sustain day to day. I was thinking about that, and I, I think I agree with him. Only in one place have I ever found and experienced a true and unrelenting joy, and it's a joy that is different than happiness. Because at, at times my, my life has been just sort of a, a net result of happiness weighed against sadness. Or, or a ledger where I, I take the good experiences and I add them to my account and I subtract The bad experiences from my account, and and we do this probably when you get home and somebody asks you how your day was, you'll think back on the past 24 hours or so and decide if you're in the red or in the black. And I don't think this is particularly abnormal. I think this is a, a human way of looking at life, and even Jesus had good days and bad days. But joy isn't just a shot of adrenaline. Joy is a buoyancy that allows me to get up when I'm down. It's something... Inherent within a person that is everlasting and unfading. And you might know somebody who has this joy. And in a small and simple way, I think Paul says this in verse 1 of our text this morning. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul's writing to believers here. So if you're a Christian, do you rejoice in the Lord? Is your life based on your present circumstance or situation or or is it based on who God is? Rejoicing in the Lord is about viewing life through the lens that God has already emerged victorious over whatever it is you're dealing with. It's knowing that God is in control when your life is in chaos. It's knowing that you are loved when you feel unlovable. It's knowing that you are loved or the person you are trying to love is loved when you're not measuring up. It's knowing your eternal standing with God despite your present circumstances. It's knowing that God's character is steadfast when people fail you, and people will fail you. Some people are, are in here this morning, and for some reason or other, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily call yourselves Christians. Uh, I, I want to say I'm glad you're here. Have you ever considered God in your pursuit of joy or your pursuit of happiness? C.S. Lewis said this, If I find in myself desires in which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. For some people, the whole idea of God sparks in your mind some sort of tyrant or overlord seeking to get something from you. Or, For other people, maybe you feel like God is just some human construct that people have made up to have some sort of social status or maybe god is a hallmark card that makes us feel better or maybe god is a genie in a bottle that grants us wishes on occasion my friends it's cliche but i want to share with you what you probably have heard some people say before but uh, the christian faith is not a religion it's a relationship it's not a religion so much as it is a relationship and it's to talk about these things and to counteract those ideas that people say that. In 1647, there was a group called the Westminster Assembly. There's a group of Scottish and English theologians that got together to uh, write a series of I believe statements uh, that are kind of in a question and answer format. And the purpose of this was to unify the church across different countries. And they made this, and they made one called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was a, a smaller one that was made to be more easily read and uh, good for children. And the very first question on this Westminster Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This was a big enough Statement to make it to number one on the list of all these Scottish and English theologians. Man's chief end or ultimate goal is to glorify God, but it doesn't stop there, and enjoy Him forever. And it sounds so similar to me to what was written in our Declaration of Independence. And so as I think about this, I think that Christians and non-Christians aren't so dissimilar. Everyone's in the pursuit of happiness. And so what Christians believe is that what they have found is the source of all joy, the source of all happiness. In fact, Psalm 43, 4 says this, There I will go to the altar of God, to God, the source of all my joy. What Christians believe is this, that God created all things, and God is good and pure and perfect and morally excellent, and at some point in human history, mankind turned away from God and chose to do things of our own accord, and we believe that is called sin, and these are offenses against God. And ever since that point, humanity has been kept apart from God or kept separate because that holy and perfect and pure God doesn't participate with sin. It's not in his nature to do that. So since that moment in time, all people have fallen short of the glory of God. And despite our attempts to to be enough, to be successful enough, to be good enough, to be moral enough, to be charitable enough, we fall short. And this has meant eternal separation from God. And that's essentially the idea of heaven and hell, an eternity with God or an eternity without him. Until, unlike any other religion in the world, God... Has come to us. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, came as a man and somehow fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect and sinless life that we couldn't live, died a brutal death, and in doing so, he took that sin that keeps us from God and he put it in the ground. And three days later, he rose again, showing not only God's willingness to come to us, but God's power over all things. And now Jesus has ascended to be with the Father once more and he prepares a place for us there. And so his death and resurrection means that I can get in on his ticket. The perfect life that he lived, that I could live, if I put my hope and faith and trust in him, I can get in on his ticket because now when God looks at me, he sees the perfect, sinless righteousness of Jesus. And so what does that mean for me? My joy is not based on this life. Everything I've ever sought after, good or bad or ugly, has come up short until Jesus. Happiness is a sprint that I can't keep up with, but joy is a marathon that Jesus has already run. I have joy based on an eternal perspective. And knowing where my eternal destination is trumps any situation I could ever find myself in. And that does not mean that my life is going to be health and wealth and rainbows and butterflies. It doesn't mean that I'm going to sidestep any form of suffering. But knowing my eternal existence within, uh, in heaven with God outshines my present experience. Life for a person who is uh, rejoicing in the Lord is knowing where they belong. And it's about being back with their creator again. So having a relationship with Jesus for me is more satisfying than any list of things I could ever come up with. So when I say look ahead, I'm saying live your life as if you already know the eternal outcome. Look ahead. The second one is look out. At first when we were given the title of this series, I wasn't sure I liked it. Finding joy in the journey sounds a little... We're all on a journey together. Life is a journey. Life is also a highway and it's also a box of chocolates and other things. But it is, it is kind of a journey, right? And on this journey, we're looking ahead, but we also need to keep our eyes open to what's around us. There are opponents of this. There are adversaries to this gospel. There are things to stumble over. And it would be foolish not to acknowledge this. So in verse 2, Paul says, Look out. For the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And this has sort of taken a a sour turn. As Paul wrote this to the church in Philippi, I think he had a few different specific groups in mind. So this is where context helps us. Judaizers were individuals who believed that salvation came from Jesus plus adherence to Jewish customs found in Old Testament law. And we see this pop up in several of Paul's letters in the New Testament. One of them that comes up a lot is circumcision. Circumcision, circum meaning around, incision meaning cut, was a, a physical symbol, bodily symbol, that represented the covenant or promised relationship between God and Israel. So now Paul is talking to Gentiles or non-Jewish people. Remember I said Philippi was very Roman. And some thought that these Gentiles needed to be circumcised as well in order to be saved, in order to have that relationship with God. And the book of Galatians even talks about this at length. He also says evildoers. He says those who mutilate the flesh. There were individuals who thought, or people groups who thought that self harm was a, a pleasing act of worship. And what Paul says in regards to these groups is look out. Look out. Just in case anyone was wondering, there are many false religions, false uh, forms of worship, false teachers today. And oftentimes they're difficult to identify because they label themselves as Christian beliefs. And if you don't believe me, I actually found one uh, this week and typed it out for us. This is something I found in a video that was said to a, a group of several thousand from a stage of a, a an organization that would label themselves uh, a Christian organization, a, Christian, a church. And it says this, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we o- obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives Him the greatest joy this morning. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen? I believe there are different types of, of false teachers. I think there are people who are absolutely well-intentioned. Absolutely well-intentioned. And they believe what they are uh, teaching on or what they are proclaiming is for the good of humanity, or for the good of people, and they'll spend their lives doing something that they they believe is absolutely well-intentioned. I believe there are also, though, as it says here, evildoers, I I believe there are people who have selfish or ill motives. Televangelists who want another private jet. I was just reading about that a little bit. And I also believe there are people who Just have some ignorance or misplaced ideals. So how do we how do we watch out? If if our our encouragement from Paul is to look out, how do you how do you look out? Uh, I've got a a couple things here that I want to list. I think the first one could be read your Bible. Read your Bible. If what we believe here is that Scripture is our ultimate authority, that is what we utilize to discern what we believe to be true and what we believe to be false. And frankly, there are some things that I consider to be true that are unsettling to me, or I wouldn't have chosen. Or if I was crafting my own religion, I wouldn't have picked to include in here. Uh, That make me uncomfortable. But I have trust in who God is and trust in the character of God. that, That outweighs what I think about it. There are things that are very, very different than the culture of our day. There were th- things that were very different than the culture of Paul's day. Reading our Bible helps us to discern what is true and what is false. The second one is do research. If you find that it's difficult to read scripture or you don't understand things, do research. And there's all sorts of resources that you could find online. Uh, call into the church and we'll give you a few. Ask questions. Ask questions to individuals who you know and trust. Hey, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this teaching that I just heard? Or what do you think about this passage? Find a variety of sources. And here's what I mean by this one. Don't pick one group. Um, You've got to be careful how I word this. Don't, don't idolize, that kind of goes along with the next one. Don't idolize one particular individual. Uh, because individuals without accountability around them are prone to make mistakes. And seek humility in this pursuit. Seek humility. This is how we watch out. This is how we look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Look out. And lastly, look in. On this journey, we're looking ahead at eternity. We're looking out for stumbling blocks in false teachings, but we also need to look in. And this is, this is really the core of this passage. Paul starts to give a specific example from his own life. He says, uh, look out because or for we are the circumcision, which is rather strange because he's speaking to the, the, uh, a Roman group, not necessarily a Jewish group or Gentiles. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's hinting at something that he says in Romans 2 where circumcision is a matter of the heart. So if you have uh, some free time, go ahead and write down Romans 2 and look that up later. But confidence in the flesh is something we get so hung up on, is it? Isn't it? Like both, both believers and unbelievers tend to revert back to this default, which is thinking that what I do is what gets me to God. What I do is what gets me to God. And Paul goes on to use his own life as an example where he spouts his resume from before encountering Jesus. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, or following those Old Testament customs, blameless. And then he goes on and he says, all this is nothing compared to knowing Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing him. He even goes so far as to say, that all of that was rubbish. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This is, by the way, this is the closest you can get probably in scripture to a swear word. I counted it all as rubbish. It's, it's translated, it loosely means the, the dung heap. Or the dung pile. When I was in college <laughs> I, had, um, I had two roommates my, my, for the first two years of living in college and he rearranged our rooms, and didn't, we didn't buy any of those command strips or hooks or anything. We didn't have any posters or anything le- yet, and we had a big blank space on our wall. And uh, one of my roommates was eating some box of goldfish crackers or, or chips or Oreos or something, and the, the little adhesive that comes on the, on the box opening uh, was, was sticky. So he had finished his box, and then he slapped it on the wall, <laughs> like right in this big, big open space. And then it stayed there for a few days, and then my other roommate had finished some box of garbage food that he had, and he slapped his on the wall, and then I did it. And before you know it, we had a collage of just, just junk food on our wall. It was, it was crackers and Oreos and cookies and candy, and it's just a, a bunch of stickers and stuff up on, just right on the wall. And then eventually somebody, our you know, guys on the floor would come into the room and think it was so hideously ugly that somebody on the floor gifted us a poster. Uh, and I don't remember exactly what the poster was, but it wasn't until we had that poster and looked at it and then looked at the wall that one of my roommates took it down and said, man, it looks a lot cleaner in here. And the other roommate was like, oh, now that we took the trash off of the wall, I said, Yeah. And he stuck the poster up there, and it wasn't until we had the poster that we realized, in fact, what we had been putting on our wall was garbage. Actual just garbage. (laughs) And it's not that, you know, we all don't enjoy some Oreos from time to time. Uh, But once we had the poster, we realized what we were doing. (laughs) I want us to look inward. This morning, because if you notice, for the most part, the things that Paul includes on his resume could be con- things that are considered good or righteous. What are the things on your resume that you keep as an insurance policy, sort of to get into heaven? Um, there's a, a mathematician and a existential philosopher named Blaise Pascal who came up with something called Pascal's Wager, and his thought was that heaven sounds really good and hell sounds really bad, and there's not really any disadvantage to me just saying I believe in God, so I'm going to do that. And he, he treated the gospel as sort of just a might as well, just in case scenario. What are your, what are your just in case items that you maintain in your life. Just in case Jesus isn't sufficient, at least I've got X. At least I've got uh, Bible schooling, or, or at least I've got a lot of money, uh, I give a lot of money away, or at least I, 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 I foster, or I've adopted, or um, at least I work hard at my job, or at least I um, remember that one time where somebody yelled at me and I held my tongue. These things are good, but they pale in comparison to the surpassing worth or the the surpassing value of Jesus because Jesus is the only one that can get you into heaven. These good things should be a result of knowing God, not a means to salvation. And so I've asked Jesse and Sarah to to come up and they're um, going to sing a song that we often do at Mission View, but what I want us to do is spend some time... um, just reflecting, uh, I want to spend some time listening to the lyrics because I think this is a great song. If you feel compelled to stand, you're welcome to do so. But we're gonna we're gonna sing a little bit. Uh, we're gonna listen, uh, and we're gonna hear about righteousness that only comes from Jesus.
1: an orphan lost Did at the thought, running away when I hear you call, Father, you worked I had no righteousness of my own, I had no right to throw me me as your own. You have raised me up so high above my station. I'm a child of God by grace and grace alone. You left your home to seek out the lost. You knew the great and terrible. my fingers down to the bone. And nothing I did could ever atone. But Jesus, You paid my debt. And by Your blood, I have redemption and salvation. Lord, You died. I was in darkness all of my life, I never knew the day from the night, Spirit, you made me see. I swore I knew the way on my own, head full of rocks and heart made of stone.
0: The message of Christianity is this that you are more flawed than you'd ever cared to admit to anybody, even yourself. But you are more loved than you've ever dared to dream. Righteousness only comes from Jesus, not what we do. Salvation only comes from Jesus, not how good we are. In this great exchange, Jesus has imparted unto us his righteousness and his sinlessness. I have a I have a story that I want to share as the band comes up before we sing our last song. This is called the room. It's by uh, it's by Joshua Harris, um, which I think is a a good illustration of this. In that place between wakefulness and dreams, I found myself in the room. There were no distinguishing features save for one wall covered with small index card files and. They were like the ones in libraries that list titles by author or subject in alphabetical order. But these files, which stretched from floor to ceiling and seemingly endlessly in either direction, had very different headings. As I drew near the wall of files, the first one to catch my attention was one that read, Girls I Have Liked. I opened it and began flipping through the cards and quickly shut it, shocked to realize that I recognized, recognized the names written on each one. And then without being told, I knew exactly where I was. This lifeless room with its small files was a crude catalog system for my life. And here were written the actions of every moment, big and small, in a detail that my memory couldn't match. A sense of wonder and curiosity, coupled with horror, stirred within me as I began randomly opening files and exploring their content. Some brought joy and sweet memories, other a sense of shame and regret so intense that I would look over my shoulder to see if anyone was watching. A file named Friends was next to one marked Friends I Have Betrayed. The titles ranged from the mundane to the outright weird, books I have read, lies I have told, comfort I have given, jokes I have laughed at. Some were almost hilarious in their exactness, things I've yelled at my brothers, others I couldn't laugh at, things I've done in my anger, things I have muttered under my breath at my parents. I never ceased to be surprised by the contents. Often there were many more cards than I had expected, sometimes fewer than I hoped, I was overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the life I had lived. Could it be possible that I had the time in my 16 years to write each of these thousands or even millions of cards? But each card confirmed this truth. Each was written in my own handwriting. Each signed with my signature. When I pulled out the file marked songs I have listened to, I realized the files grew to contain their contents. The cards were packed tightly, and yet after two or three cards, I hadn't found the end of the file. I shut it, shamed, not so much by the quality of the music, but more by the vast amount of time I knew that file represented. When I came to a file marked Lustful Thoughts, I felt a chill run through my body. I pulled the file at only an inch, not willing to test its size, and drew out a card. I shuddered at its detailed content and felt sick to think that such a moment had been recorded. An almost animal rage broke on me, and one thought dominated my mind. No one must ever see these cards. No one must ever see this room. I have to destroy them. In an insane frenzy, I I yanked the file out, and its size didn't matter now. I had to empty it and burn the cards. But as I took it at one end and began pounding it on the floor, I couldn't dislodge a single card. I became desperate, and when I pulled out a card, only only I, I just found it as strong as steel when I tried to tear it. Defeated and utterly helpless, I returned the file to its slot, and leaning my forehead against the wall, I let out a long, self-pitying sigh, and then I saw it. The title bore people I have shared the gospel with. The handle was brighter than those around it, new or almost unused, and I pulled on its handle, and a, a small box, not more than three inches long, fell into my hands, and I could count the cards it contained on one hand. And then the tears came. I I began to weep and sob so deep that the hurt started in my stomach and shook through me. I fell on my knees and cried, and I I cried out of shame from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of file shelves swirled in my tear-filled eyes. No one must ever, ever know of this room. I must lock it up and hide the key. But then as I pushed away the tears, I saw him. No, please, not him, not here. Anybody, Anybody but Jesus. I watched helplessly as he began to open the files and read the cards and couldn't bear to watch his response. And in the moments I could bring myself to look at his face, I saw a sorrow deeper than my own. He seemed to intuitively go to the worst boxes. Why did he have to read every one? Finally, he turned and looked at me from across the room. He looked at me with, with pity in his eyes, but this was a pity that didn't anger me. I dropped my head and covered my face with my hands and began to cry. He walked over and put his arm around me. He could have said so many things, but he didn't say a word. He just cried with me. Then he got up and walked back to the wall of files. And starting at one end of the room, he took out a file and one by one began to sign his name over mine on each card. No, I shouted, rushing to him. All I could, all I could find to say was no, no, as I, I pulled a card from him. His name shouldn't be on these cards, but there it was, written in red, so rich, so dark, so alive. The name of Jesus covered mine, written with his own blood. He gently took the card back and smiled a sad smile and began to sign the cards. And I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly, but the next instant seemed I had heard him close the last file and walk back to my side. He placed his hand on my shoulder and said, "'It is finished.' I stood up and he led me out of the room and there was no lock on the door because there were still cards to be written. Knowing the power of his resurrection to defeat sin and death and reconcile our relationship to God is more valuable than anything. And we may not become healthy and wealthy and perfect, instead we may share in his sufferings as Paul says. We will die as Paul says We will be resurrected with him, as Paul says. And our unwavering hope has nothing to do with our works, whether you are someone who confesses to be a believer or not. But it has everything to do with God being who he says he is. So this morning, look ahead at your eternal circumstances, look out for the stumbling blocks around you, and look in at yourself. And have the humility to recognize that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. And this can bring you joy beyond any list of good or happy things that you could find in your life.